Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 997. On this week's show, we begin with our own resident Phillies fan, Michael Bauman, chatting with our Padres fan, Jason Martinez, as they go over the first two games of this wild NLCS. Jason was able to attend both contests so far, and Michael will be at each of the next three games in Philly, and both didn't really expect their teams to get this far. We hear about Jason working as a field timing coordinator, what it feels like to face and watch Blake Snell, how Jake Cronenworth has bloomed, how much they both love Jorge Alfaro, and how Michael is more intimidated by Manny Machado than Juan Soto. He scares me a little bit more than Soto does, just on like an instinctual level. Yeah. Soto feels to me like the dangerous Soto at bat is the fifth inning in game two where Nola made a couple really, really good pitches, and then Soto somehow got inside of that fastball and kept it fair down the line for the RBI double that tied the game, whereas Machado is the guy who's going to hit the 450-foot home run that just completely breaks your spirits. And I think Soto is a tougher out, but Machado feels like the guy who's going to come up and really turn the series on its ear. And there's just absolutely no like empirical basis for that. But, you know, Dylan told us to embrace like the fan side of this conversation. And and that's that's sort of how I'm feeling watching those two guys right now. In the second segment, Dan Zimborski welcomes new Fangraphs contributor Davey Andrews for his podcast debut. Davey tells us how he got into baseball writing, but we also hear about his musical career and some of the projects he is in, including some with other baseball folks you may know. Dan and Davey also talk about being fun uncles, Jose Altuve's playoff struggles and Hall of Fame chances, what the Dodgers should do in the offseason, the playoffs being a bit of a crapshoot, and Dan's very light form of Fangraph's rookie hazing. Do you have a position on Cincinnati Chili? I, I have <laughs> been, <laughs> I've been reading Fangraph's chats for a long time. So I I know enough not to wade into this. Damn it. See, I to welcome people to to Fangrass on their first podcast, I like to make them a little uncomfortable, maybe threaten them a little, uh, and then and then they're all set. But before we get to these wonderful segments, I must deliver my weekly reminder for you to check out the fangrafts.com shop. Not only can you get yourself some fangrafts threads, but you can pick up a membership for yourself or as a gift for a friend. It is of course the best way to not only browse the site but also to support the site, allowing us to do all the cool things we do. Thank you so much. We couldn't do it without you. Enjoy the show. Hello, I'm Michael Bauman. I'm a writer at Fangraphs, and I would like to introduce my conversation partner today. You know his work well. He's uh, the man behind Roster Resource, which is a resource I use basically every day. Uh, He's the man who knows everything, and he was at Petco Park for games one and two of the NLCS. He's Jason Martinez. Hello, Jason. Hey, Michael. How's it going? Well, it was going better in like inning three of yesterday's game than it is now for me. Hey, you got one win, man. I, I think this is a pretty, it's going to be a pretty balanced conversation rather than one of us kind of just really bummed and one of us a little bit happier, a lot happier. Yeah. <laughs> so Dylan wanted to have the two of us on together because obviously I'm a Phillies fan and you're a Padres fan. And there are certainly combinations of Phillies fans and Padres fans who would take this opportunity to yell and scream. But I think for as as wild as this series is, like you said, it's both of us, I think, are feeling pretty even keeled. There's, you know, things that we wish had gone differently, but I think both teams are probably happy with the position they're in. Yeah, especially because neither team was expected to get this far, I think. Neither team, like, 
got really hot at the end of the season. They both were, you know, all three of the teams that were that were left, you know, were kind of struggling. You know, mm-hmm. it was like, all right, who's gonna who's gonna just take this and run? And then, like the Brewers were were the worst out of the right. three. And so the, the fact that they're here, you can look at those teams and go, damn, these guys are. They're both. There's so much talent on both teams. But then you can also kind of see, ah, that's why. Yeah, that that was. That's why they were bad a lot a lot of the season as well. That's why the Phillies got their their manager fired. That's why you know the Padres were pretty. I don't know. You know, I, I've I've been watching. You know, obviously I've been a, pe- a fan since I was a kid, and all the Petco Park years have been frustrating in this way. It's just hard for. A hitter. It sucks. It probably sucks for a hitter to yeah. play there and to try to get out of a rut. Um, and so this team is constantly in, in a team, you know, it's, it's always, it's always struggling offensively. It's hard to get a bunch of guys going at once. And it's crazy that, you know, they, they made it to the playoffs and it's like, all right, let's just get to the playoffs and then anything can happen. And in the Padres case, it's crazy because they are probably playing as good as they have all season offensively they got a bunch of guys who are just kind of like they're they're no there's no automatic outs they're all having good at bats yeah as opposed to during the season i mean i would say there's probably there probably wasn't one time there was i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna i'll take that back there was one time during the season where two guys were just tearing it up and one of those guys is no longer on the team and that was manny machado and eric hosmer if you look at the first five weeks of the season those guys were putting up huge numbers and then after that i mean you, you got machado who was pretty good the entire season and then yeah, you know some contributions from a few guys but m- mostly it was a bad bad offense and you know if you, if you watch the padres as a phillies fan you know that they shut them shut them out a couple times zach wheeler I would probably bet on him not giving up a run the next time he pitches against him. Yeah. Well, I think you you brought up the important thing early in your answer, which was I think you and I should join hands and raise a glass to the Milwaukee Brewers for allowing both of our teams the opportunity to to make the playoffs in the in the ma- manner they did. Because like, actually, you know what? Let's not crap on the Brewers. Let's crap on the Brewers <laughs> yeah. this offseason. So yeah. I, before we get like too far into the ins and outs of this series, between the two of us, we will have basically this entire series covered. One of us will be at every game. So I'm going to the three games in Philadelphia this weekend as a Fangraphs writer, you know, on, under a, a press credential. I'll be doing recaps of all three games. But you have a different function, one that I think is unknown to a lot of fans and is mysterious to, to even me. So why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about what you were doing the first two games at at Petco. Yeah, so so I I do have a full time job at Fangraphs, and that's all roster resource stuff that I don't need. I don't need to be at the at the game to do that. I could do that all for my laptop. But I have I have three part time jobs now, all all through ma- through Major League Baseball, and it's all part of the game day operations. And so I think I went to maybe I usually go to about sixty games a year. And then this year it was a lot less because I'm doing a lot of minor league games from home now. So I ended up doing like a hundred different days of this, one of these three jobs. And so playoffs, the only thing I'm doing is, it's called FTC field timing coordinator. And so, you know, if, if you see that clock out, you know, if you're out in the, at a ballpark and you see the clock running, that's somebody like me is operating that clock. And next year it's going to be the pitch clock. And so there's going to be a lot more pressure. We, we've been joking about how it is a lot more yeah, pressure. Like now, n- nobody really cares. I mean, you know, the only time there's any interaction with with anybody on the field is if if the pitcher's ready to go. At, you know, after the at, you know the start of the inning, if he's ready to go, and, and there's still a commercial break, which is why that clock is running. 
And if that clock's still going, you know, you're still at commercial. And then the umpire needs to see it and kind of hold everybody up. Right now, that's, you know, you, you wouldn't notice. And so next year, we're like, you know, you're going to see Max, Max Scherzer yelling at, at, at us up at the press box, waving his arms going, you started that clock too quickly, or, you know, or something. Just, it, it's it's going to definitely be be some pressure there. You've got a lot of power even now, though. I think we should set up a system where, like, one of us is watching from home. Whenever one of those Citizens for Sanity ads comes on TV, like, we can <laughs> message you and you, oh, no, the, the clock's down to zero now. Like, oh, oh, man. We got to start the game. <laughs> I wish, man. I wish. It's, it, you know, I, th- I think the only, the only thing I could do right now to mess, to mess with the game is if I so so let's say there's a close play for the third out of the inning. You want to instead of going to the commercial, you got to start that 22nd clock again, just because that's the 20 seconds is what gives the the uh, the managers a chance to, to to decide if they want to challenge it. So it could be in between plays too. So you want to get you know, and, and the umpires will look at that 20 seconds and they'll go, "All right, you didn't challenge it, so or you didn't tell me you you wanted to challenge it, so you don't get a chance to challenge it." So if I were to, to just start that too quick or if I were to take too long to start it and give the, you know, give one of the managers, you know, 30 seconds to, to decide, that's the one thing. But that never, ever comes up either. So it's, it's like I said, it, it's a pretty relaxing job. It's stuff that, you you know, and I've been doing this one for nine, nine seasons. So next year is going to be totally, totally different. It occurs to me that all the people who get mad on Twitter, all the broadcast teams against us, they probably didn't know that your job existed, that like there could be a clock operator who could be <laughs> against their team. And that's why they're losing. We certainly can't blame uh, what happened to the Padres in game one or the Phillies in game two on any clock management. So let's take the two the two games sort of side by side. I think these are the two kinds of games that these two teams will play against each other, which one is exceptional pitching on both ends interrupted periodically by a 488 foot home run and then on the other end if the pitching is not exceptional and i think blake wheeler uh blake wheeler yeah that's good (laughs) i put together two starting pitchers and came up with the former captain of the winnipeg jets so in game two blake snell outpitched aaron nola i don't think that's particularly controversial but both of them got dinged around a little bit and we've seen you know saw this massive seesaw action and the Phillies you know the Phillies lost lost in the end and and that game was pretty much over by the end of the the fifth inning but the Phillies did threaten a couple times they had the Hoskins home run they had the chance with with Harper up late in the game and it's one of those two kinds of games that we're gonna get either the very low scoring or just total chaos and I think that this series has been a favorite for neutral fans one because this is these are two teams you don't see in the playoffs every year, and there's a novelty factor. But I think both of them play are playing kind of a fun brand of baseball right now. Yeah, no doubt. And, I, and you see that if you go on Twitter, you see non-Pottery and non-Philly fans going, "Wow, I love baseball. Baseball is fun. Baseball is not boring." And I go, <laughs> oh, "I know that. I know what they're talking about because I'm here at this game, and it's kind of crazy. And a lot of a lot of stuff happened. You, you had." You know, and I think once once the Potters started to to run away with it a little, I think all, all you can ask for, you know, from the other team is is if you're a fan, you go just make it interesting. Yeah. And they, you know, Harper hit that hit that double, then nothing happened, nothing came of that, and then later on they had a little rally going, and then he hit into the double play. So it was like, all right, there, you know, there was a little bit. It wasn't like they just went one two three one two three. It was over, you know. And then the other the other night, you know, the, the Potters the Potters had Manny Machado at the plate as as a yeah. winning run. 
And if, if you've been paying attention to the Padres, I think Manny's about, you just be happy that Manny put the ball in play there. He's about 0 for 10 in those situations since, since that last, <laughs> since the last homestand. And I think Manny's been the MVP, but I, I did, I did have to throw that in because I've been, that's I, interesting I've been you keeping say track. That, I've been keeping track of these. Yeah. I, I guess like that surprises me a little bit because he did, they did get him out at the end of game one, but he scares me a little bit more than Soto does just on like an instinctual level. Yeah. Soto feels to me like the dangerous Soto at bat is, the fifth inning in game two, where Nola made a couple really, really good pitches, and then Soto somehow got inside of that fastball and kept it fair down the line for the RBI double that tied the game, whereas Machado is the guy who's going to hit the 450-foot home run that just completely breaks your spirits. And I think Soto is a tougher out, but Machado feels like the guy who's going to come up and really turn the series on its ear. And there's just absolutely no like empirical basis for that. But, you know, Dylan told us to embrace like the fan side of this conversation. And, and that's that's sort of how I'm feeling watching those two guys right now. Yeah, for sure. And, I, and I'm sure you have, you know, some insight on, on some of those guys there on how, you know, if you don't watch them every day, it's kind of like, oh, yeah, Manny Machado's he's freaking great. He's, he should be the MVP. And he's he's like I said, he's he's the only guy that was good the entire season but i've been keeping a list because it happened and this is this is during the dodgers series the last homestand started against the dodgers where they needed to win some games and i think he had there was two at bats where it was bases loaded and two outs they were either losing or it was zero it was it was tied and chris martin came in and struck him out like blew him away and there was two other at bats where where he had like runners on the corners less than two outs and he struck out and that carried over into the white Sox series and then again, against the Dodgers in the playoffs, it happened two more times. And I go, look, he's getting let off the hook because he, he struck out before Cronenworth got that game, uh, that mm-hmm. go ahead single, he struck out. And he's not, that hasn't been the story. And so I say, like, as, as a Phillies fan, you get, you should be afraid that how many more at bats is he going to go till it just like, and that's happening like every game he's coming up in that situation. Mm-hmm. Nobody's ever saying anything. And I got some point he's going to break it. He's going to break that. And then he's going to, he's going to have more confidence and it's going to, he's just going to go off. What you're describing is exactly what happened to Harper in the past. Oh, wow. Like the last month of the the regular season, like people were talking about like Harper being the guy to carry the Phillies offense, which he was last year. But ever since he came back from the, from the thumb injury, he just looked, he looked hurt and he looked completely lost the last like month of the season. So the numbers were bad, but also like he was taking bad at bats when he did get on, on base, he was trying so hard to make stuff happen that he was making unnecessary outs on the bases. Just everything looked like a total mess. And that's something that like, you know, even a somebody who covers the entire league, it's not going to watch enough Phillies games to to pick up on that. But they're still talking about him like he was the most dangerous hitter in the lineup, which he wasn't really until the start. It, well, until he hit that home run in, in game two of the of the Cardinal series. And now he's got extra base hits in, in seven straight postseason games or whatever tying. This is how, you know, he's hitting. Well, there was a, a Chiron up on the, the Fox broadcast yesterday. It said ties record set by Carlos Beltran in 2004. So, I mean, that's, that's the way he's been hitting the, the past week or so, but it's, it's an example of, of how fast a player can go from looking completely lost to being the most dangerous hitter on the planet. And, uh, you know, Harper and Machado are narratively linked in, in numerous ways, but I, I think Machado's got that, that capability. I think you're exactly right that like, this isn't going to keep happening over and over and the Phillies need to take advantage while he's still having one of the cooler parts of his season. Yeah. And he, and I know that guy knows 
every time. And, you know, because it's probably, you know, his team is, you know, an at-bat or two at-bats later, these, this team is celebrating like one of the biggest hits of the year. You know, yesterday was Drury. Another day, you know, against the Dodgers, it was Cronenworth. And this guy's going, I just freaking choked, you know, on one of the biggest at-bats of my life. But I'm, I'm, still, I'm still really happy. So, what you know, and, and, I, and I think there's still so much time for him to, to kind of break that. And so that's, that's why I said, like, if I was a Phillies fan, I'd be like, oh, man, I know that's probably going to – that's probably coming. And I, you know, I'm the kind of the, the fan that I see the storylines, you know, happening early early in the game, early, you know, at certain points of the season. That would definitely be a big one. And I, and I think it is – you know, I was talking with somebody yesterday about why nobody is really talking about it. And they said, well, it's kind of unfair. It's almost like, like a hit job. Like this guy's carried the team the whole season. And then like right in the middle of this really good part, you know, the best they've been playing, best season they've had in, in, in so long, you're going to write about how Manny Machado's struggling. Like, I, you know, maybe it's the same. I, I wouldn't think it's the same with <laughs> Phillies, Phillies writers. No, it's, you, well, you know? we've got a good collection of beat writers right now, but it's, been that way in the past like you look at the way that guys like scott Rowland and bobby abreu got treated when they were the only good player on the team and like i mean it's a chronic thing that certainly here i imagine it's similar most places where if the team is merely pretty good it's the best player on the team's fault just because that's the you know the guy everybody knows who he is so there you know there might be some of that but i mean the thing about the padres is they've got soto now they've got so many big name you know big name pitchers like there's a lot of a lot of guys who can share the load and i think like that's why they've been so dangerous in the postseason yeah what, what, what were your thoughts on blake snell coming in because I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about about him and what happened yesterday but what i mean coming into this game what are your thoughts on you know the philly's got to face this guy here so i thought so i like blake snell i was you know, i'm gonna take credit i was an early blake snell adopter i went and uh and profiled him early in his cy young season but he's a nibbler and Darvish can be like this too, but Snell, when everything's not clicking, will just work around the edges of the plate. And the Phillies have a lot of guys with exceptional plate discipline, you know, namely Schwarber and Harper and Hoskins. And I thought that might be a difficult matchup for him, but he pitched, I think he pitched really well yesterday, like he avoided a lot of the, uh, uh, the pitfalls that, that you can get into. And I think that's, I mean, that's important because if you look at the, at the three, you know, you think of. Each team has three good starting pitchers. This was the matchup I thought most favored the Phillies, Nola versus Snell, because of the way that Nola had been pitching the past couple of weeks and the Snell's propensity to to nibble. But I, you know, I think he was as good, you know, as good as you could reasonably ask for yesterday. Yeah, and and he, so he's pretty much, you know, those four innings that he didn't give up those runs. He was almost perfect. He was just like dominant, you know, he strikes mostly everybody out. No, no hard contact, you know, maybe a walk in there. But yesterday it was, it was different because he, he, he goes one, one inning every game where he just, he'll walk the leadoff guy and then everything slows down. He'll slow it down. It'll take 45 seconds in between pitches. Mm -hmm. He starts nibbling. He doesn't want to throw it down the middle. And then because guys can't square him up, it was just foul ball after foul ball, and it and, and the inning goes on forever. And on a good day, you know he'll he'll strand runners at you know he'll st- strand two runners on, maybe give up a run, and then okay, you didn't get to Blake Snell. Now he's going to go six innings, and you only score one yeah. one run off of him. But of course, he you know he threw forty pitches that inning, so he's he's not going more than six innings. And so every game, I go, well, what's what's the bad inning going to be? And 
can he limit the damage against this team? And it didn't happen yesterday, but that bad inning was just like the three, you know, two bloop singles and then another, you know, soft liner. And then it was, and then a couple of errors in there. That, that's something that never happens to him. But then he, he never went on to have that bad inning. And maybe they pulled him, you know, at the right time as, as well. Or maybe that would have been his bad inning. But yeah, he, he was, that was probably the best I've seen him where he's just, he just didn't have, he just wasn't any point where you go, all right, Austin Nola, go talk to him. All right, pitching coach, go talk to him, slow him down, try to get him back on track. He's just, you know, he, he's a, he's an ace starter that just, if not for that one inning, he can easily go seven or eight innings every every game and just be one of the best in the game. You just can't avoid that. I had sort of an odd reaction to to that inning where they dinked and dunked him for four runs. So there's the game two of the 2011 NLDS against the Cardinals is one of those games that's like one of those group trauma games for, for Phillies fans. The Phillies were up 4 nothing, and then Cliff Lee pitched really well, but the same thing that happened to Snell in that one inning yesterday happened to him the entire second half of the game, and they ended up losing and, you know, went on to to lose the series. Ryan Howard tears his Achilles, and, you know, the Phillies are never heard from again. Right. And so, like, I was watching all the, the Phillies fans I'm accumulated on my Twitter follow list just going nuts about this inning, and, like, this never happens to us. And I tweeted like, this is the other side of the, of the Cliff Lee game. And somebody like some immediately responded, wait, they were up for nothing in that game too. And I went immediately. was like, ah, crap. Like, <laughs> cause when that inning ended, when, when they only got four runs, it's like, it didn't feel like a knockout blow, but it felt like a knockdown. And the, you know, as well as Nola had pitched to that point, it felt like it was going to be difficult for the the Padres to come back. But as they were going off the field, I was like, they're going to regret not getting more. Like they, they batted for like 45 minutes and they only got four runs. And like, we saw how quickly the Padres can eat, eat into that deficit. And, you know, I think, you know, there's a lot of what you talked about where like Snell is going to have that one inning where it gets away from him. And in this case, the results got away from him, but not necessarily the the process and the nibbling and, and all that stuff. And and he just, you know, they can't, the, the Phillies threatened again, but he was in control the rest of the time he was in the game. Yeah. And I think at that time as well, yeah, it did, it did feel like it could have been a lot worse. But also, it did feel at that time like this offense is just, they're just asleep again. And the, you know, the Padres can go, can, can have a six game homestand and score nine runs, you know, and they'll still win three or four games, but like they don't score a lot at, at Peco Park. And so that almost, you know, in my mind was like, all right, now you know, you're not going to score one or two runs today. Like you got to wake up. You got to wake up and, and maybe this is good. And I'm usually not that optimistic. You know, I, I think now that we're here in the playoffs, I am going to be a little bit more optimistic about how, you know, like I said, it's kind of happy, just happy that we're here. But also like, yeah, I did feel this offense needs to wake up. Maybe that's the wake up call. It wasn't like their pitcher just was getting beat up out there. So like we're down four nothing just like that. And okay, now now we, we now we know we have to hit. So there are listeners waiting for the Jake Cronenworth question. When I was covering college baseball in the in the Midwest, Jake Cronenworth was Michigan's best player. He was their leadoff hitter. He was their uh, Friday night starter. He was the, the Big Ten tournament most outstanding player. And I've been gratified to see him turn into a middle of the order hitter on the on a team that also has Juan Soto and and Manny Machado. He was the guy who had the big hit in to clinch the the Dodgers series. What are your thoughts? Just give me some some Jay Cronenworth chat. 
you know, there's been a, you know, all, all throughout the league, I think, because of the, the baseball, right? The baseball, they changed the baseball again this year, and it doesn't fly like it was for the last three seasons or so. And so you see offense down throughout throughout the league. And, of course, we have the Petco Park factor. And it, it seems like certain guys who are like, well, you know, if, if the ball is flying like this, you know, this is back, you know, 2019, 2020. If I elevate the ball, I can be a 20 home run guy. Okay, let, let's go with this. And, um, you know, I, I think for the most part, a lot of guys haven't adjusted. I would say a guy like Austin Nola probably has been the best at just going, look, I don't have that kind of power. Everything, I'm going to just try to hit the ball hard. It's, everything's going to be on the ground, line drives. And he's been really good. And I think Cronenworth, not not to that extent, he still will elevate the ball to, to center and left and kind of kind of you can you can see his body language like oh i i hit that one well and then and then it doesn't go anywhere and you know but for the most part you can kind of see him like he knows okay i'm not going to hit it out unless i just turn on it and just crush it okay but he's just he's just doing a really good job of trying to hit hit line drives hit the ball hard and man what a great defender like what a great defensive second baseman he is and they they put him at shortstop a couple times and you go oh wow he's good there too and, you know, why waste him at, you know, first base? They've been talking about moving him to first base forever, just, you know, just so there would be room for, for Kim and, and Tatis that, you know, when, when everybody was available. But it doesn't matter where you, where you play him. It just seems like one of those, one of those kids. It reminded me, you know, when the Padres were going off in 2020, you know, all the focus was on Tatis and Machado and Cronenworth was in the middle of everything. And it just reminded me of that, that little kid in Little League that was just like, you didn't, you weren't paying attention to him because he was smaller than everybody else. Mm -hmm. And you, you know, you had these superstars and this team was just beating the crap out of everybody. But this little kid just kept, you know, you kept, the more you watch, you go, Oh man, this little kid is good. And he's got so much swag. Like he knows he's good. And I just kind of reminded me of Cronenworth, even though he's not small. Like I, I walked past him the other day at a, at a coffee shop. He's, he's, he's like, I don't know, six, six feet tall, six, you know, he's, he's, he's the he's, smallest person I've ever seen in real life. Whose neck is wider than his head. He <laughs> just, yeah, it's just one of those guys. And, and, and still doesn't get a ton of attention or nationally, but everybody knows him here, you, you know, and he's one of those guys like, Back when the Padres were really good in the in the in the in ninety six and ninety eight, then you had all like people who normally weren't Padres fans loved. They had their their favorites, you know. They loved Chris Gomez and and Andy Ashby, and and now like you know all the soccer moms they love Jake Cronenworth, you know. All the kids love Jake Cronenworth, you know. When you have to compete with with Fernando Tatis Jr., who's like man, he was he was like a god here for you know, and this it's going to change now, but. For a couple of years, it's yeah. like, you know, if, if you were to watch watch all the Padres come out to, to get on the bus to go, you know, a, after a game, man, you see Tatis come out and it's just like, you know, that's freaking, that's the Beatles here, you know, <laughs> that's but Cronenworth, man, he's, he's just he's definitely is still, still underrated. And I don't know if he's ever going to be more than what he is right now. I, I think he's going to have a better year because I think he hit like he hit under 250. And I think, like I said, he made, made an, seems like he was making more of an adjustment later. But somebody who could definitely be a be a three hundred hitter with, with fifteen homers and, and do that for for a long time. He's yeah. What you're talking about when when I was covering him in college, it was like ninety one off the mound and like everything and like just short of being able to play shortstop in the big leagues. It's what it looked like at the time. But every time I and so he was like a day two guy. They're like, this is a really good college player, but you know we'll see what he, what comes of him in the pros. And I just remember watching him like he makes so much contact. 
And it's not like power, but everything is is hard. Like everything he hits, it's just a hard line drive. And that kind of player, weirdly, I think is a little underrated right now. I think of somebody on the on the Phillies, Gene Segura, who like he's hitting in the bottom of the order. He was like part of this wave of acquisitions, the first wave with Harper and Real Muto, but he sort of gets lost between like the you know, Schwarber and Cassianos and the, the kids coming in, but he's just such a good contact hitter and he uses, you know, he has enough power. He uses all fields. He's a good defensive second baseman in the same way that Cronenworth is, where it's just good positioning, good hands, incredible arm for a second baseman. And it just seems like nobody really respects him. Like they, it hasn't been this way. Like he hasn't gotten the respect he deserves, like dating back to when he was in Milwaukee. Like it's just, it's so valuable to have somebody like that either in the middle of your lineup in the in the Padres case or down in the bottom half the, the way Segura is with the Phillies. Just keeping the line moving, just making the defense work. And I really do think we don't appreciate that kind of hitter enough. Yeah, and, espe- and especially if you, you if you see these guys every single day, those guys stand out yeah. a little bit more. And if you don't, I want to ask you about a guy who, who probably isn't going to get an at-bat the entire postseason. It would be great if, if he did. And somebody who, who you're probably familiar with, uh, it's, it's Jorge Alfaro. Oh, I love uh, Jorge man. Alfaro. And how oh. Can, oh, I love that guy. And, and the polar opposite of of Cronenworth is. A, it, yeah, and that's what I was thinking too. Is that this is a guy who you know when the Padres picked him up, it was like, all right, I, you know, I thought it, it seemed like he was just going to kind of be a guy who was just going to he was he was going to get released by the Marlins. Who's going to trade for him? Like, look at his numbers. Or his numbers are bad. And then you start looking up the highlights and you go, oh my god, this guy's a beast. You know, and you'd heard so much about you know, him as, as a prospect. And then it's never quite, you know, he, if you look at his numbers in Philly, they were, they were fine. They were good. I was, I was not that happy about the Rio Muto trade because he went the other way. I was like, this is a good big league catcher that they're sending away in addition to Sixto Sanchez for, you know, for a more expensive, you know, great athletic catcher. But obviously like now I do that trade a hundred times out of a hundred. I'm, I'm wrong sometimes, but like he's got one of my, it's not a El Oso is not like a great florid creative nickname, but it's just so descriptive because he is like a bear. Like that's just how fast he is, how strong he is. The the throwing arm, just everything about him is is exciting. It's hard to be an exciting catcher. And I'm going after we, we hang up here, I'm going to get a haircut before the before I have to you know be out in person. I'm going to bring a picture of Jorge Alfaro with me <laughs> oh, uh, man. to the barber. I'm jealous that you have that much that much hair, man. That's <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't have that much hair, but it's uh, getting into a little bit of back to the warning track nice. in my 30s. But I'm enjoying it as uh, uh, while I still can. But yeah, I I love that guy. He's dating back to his days in the in the Rangers system. He's he's always been a favorite of mine. Yeah, and, and the one thing I, I think about a lot, and, and because this has been a year where it's kind of it's kind of been a reminder that oh, Petco Park, man, this is such a this is the worst place for offenses. Every player they've ever acquired in the middle of the season, and, and they go, all right, now you get to play your home games at, at Petco Park, and their numbers just are terrible. And it's like I th- I think looking at Alfaro's season, where you go, look at this guy, super talented, and you kind of get the you hit the reset button, right? Like like with with a lot of stuff, like you hit, you hit the reset button, you 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 unplug it, and you plug it back in, and that's kind of like it's kind of like firing your manager sometimes, or kind of like firing your hitting coach. It's a change of scenery. And you go, okay, well, Jorge has a change of scenery. He's going, you know, AJ wanted him, Preller wanted him, and he's he's got a he's got a new shot here. And so you could just tell, just every at bat, he's just so focused, right? 
and he's having good at bats. He's not swinging at a lot of bad pitches. And at some point, it's just like that's hard to do for an entire season. And, and you know, when you play at Petco Park, it's just like I imagine it's even harder. So at some point, you just saw it, it just ran out. It was just like the guy, he just can't stop swinging at bad pitches. And they didn't, it didn't take yeah. long for the potters just to be like, all right, you're not going to play anymore because, <laughs> you know, it was, we'll save you for some, you know, if we need a home run at the end of the game, some dramatics. But it's just, it's a tough game, man. It's, it's really hard. It's hard to be a, a hitter. And with the stuff these guys have these days to, to, to not have that skill set, like a, like a Juan Soto and a Bryce Harper and a Manny Machado have that, that allows them to lay off some of the, you know, some of those pitches, like most guys don't have that. And when you're Jorge Alfaro, it's just like, how do you, you just, you have to be so locked in to have a good at bat and to do that every single day. It's just like, it's, it's impossible for this guy to be a, a an everyday player, but you know, there's going to be 10 highlights from this year that are just Jorge Alfaro. Mm-hmm. You know there, what I mean? Yeah. If the Padres win the world series, the DVD will have a lot of semi shirtless Jorge Alfaro on it. Yeah, no doubt. But it, like even the even the hitter you're describing, just the fact that he can run into one every so often, like one thing that stuck out to me this postseason is just the level of total crap catcher offense the teams are willing to uh, to tolerate. Like the amount of of big time at bats Austin Hedges got, or the playing time that Martin Maldonado got or is getting with the the Astros and you know those guys came up with with key hits here and here and there and they've got they're not in the the lineup for their bat but it's it's a huge hole in the lineup and just even somebody like Alfaro who's gonna I've got the the Padres page up right now who's gonna strike out nine times for every walk the fact that he can run into one every so often just like it's so much easier to to build a lineup when you have somebody who has any clue whatsoever what they're doing with a bat in their hands yeah and I think. It's amazing how, in both in the case of both the Padres and the Phillies, I, I think, especially with the Padres, from, from what I'm seeing, because they did so much trading and they've been so active, you know, in free agency, is that the difference between them not getting to the playoffs and advancing to the playoffs was like, okay, all these trades we made, all these signings we made, could have gone from like, ah, that was a waste, to all right, it worked out. You know, maybe they didn't have the greatest stats, but they they came up big when it you know during this game and this game, and now we're in the playoffs. It all it, it all worked out. I think that's you know, and, and I remember I was I was in the press box after um, so it was the game that the Padres either the, either the Brewers had to lose or the Padres had to win, and they would have clinched. But the Brewers were were ahead of the, the Brewers game started early, and so I was just like, look, I want to see. You know, the Padres were at that point, there was four games left and all they had to do was win one of those games or the Brewers had to lose a game. It's like, all right, we got it. I had already celebrated in my head. And the, the Padres front office guys, so Preller and all those guys, and, and they, they sit in the, there's the owner, owner's boxes next to the press box. And then, then all the front office guys are sitting over there. So you can see them and you can hear them. And it was, it became evident that they were, they were watching the, the Brewers game. And they were cheering for the Marlins at the time. And I was like, ah, who cares about that, man? Let's just win this game so we, we can see our guys celebrate on the field. And so eventually the, the, the Marlins beat the Brewers and the Padres clinch. You know, the Padres are losing at the time. And so you just see that you hear them going crazy there. They're celebrating. And I'm like, ah, come on, man. That's let's not celebrate if, if you know, like that unless we win. But then I thought about it and I'm like, all all the work these these guys have put in, all the trades they've made. and it. A lot of them look like they could be kind of bad at the end at at the end of it. You know, you can go, oh man, why did we do that? But going to the postseason, 
Like, that's what you did it for. And it's like, all right, yeah. th- now they're all good trades. They're all good signings because we, it all worked out for us. Um, and so the deeper they go into the playoffs, obviously, the more, the more that is, that is actually a thing, you know? All right. So I do want to get back to like looking forward to the second half or the, the back end of, of this series as much as I would love to sit here all day. And I'm sure our listeners would love for us to sit here all day and talk about Jorge Alfaro, who's probably not going to play in this series. Where are you? Where are you at? Like, how do you feel about the split? And, you know, how, how did you feel about the Padres chances coming into the series? And has that outlook changed? Yeah, I, th- I thought that a split was going to be most likely, and I figured if, if if we at least got a split, I don't think the Phillies are going to are going to win all three, and it's going to it's just going to be crazy here in San Diego once they come back for Game Six, whether they're down three two or if they're up. As long as they as they can bring it back to San Diego, I felt I feel pretty good because I think I think the the you know the Petco Park thing for hitters is is real, but if they go they're going to Philly, they have a, they, they put up some runs there. I don't think I don't think it's going to be a big deal coming back home and being like, ah, oh, we got to go, you know, play where it's really tough to to score runs out. I don't, and I don't think that matters so much in the postseason, anyways, because I think it is. It's really always a, tough to score runs no matter where you're playing. Yeah, yeah, but the postseason. I mean, it's just facing great pitchers. It's always going to come down to just who's having the, the most clutch hits. Um, not everybody hits 500 foot home runs like like Schwarber. Those are you know those aren't those aren't happening very often in the, in the playoffs because you're facing good pitchers. So I, I just figured let's just bring it back to San Diego for game six. And I was going to feel pretty good about it. And, and like I said, I already feel pretty good about the season, but yeah, that, that's where I, where I am on it. What about yourself? I agree with you that I'm okay with the split. I think having the four, nothing lead dangled in front of us and then taken away last night hurt. That was a tough, you know, even so my wife is talking to, you know, talking to people who are like, Oh, you know, tell them that, you know, I'm going to going to these games. They're like, oh, but he's a Phillies fan. Like, is he allowed to cheer in the press box? I'm like, no, I'm trying to be like, you know, I'm being objective and professional and, and everything. But even even then, I'm just like, damn it. Like, that was a that was a real gut punch to to lose that game. But if I think if you step back, look at it objectively, you get the split. You've never trailed in this series. And coming back home and looking at how well they played against the Braves at home gives me a lot of hope. Just the amount of offense they were able to produce, the how well everybody pitched, the the atmosphere. Like everybody was talking about how nuts the how nuts Petco was yesterday. And like I can't imagine it getting like my teeth hurt coming home from from game three uh in Philadelphia. And I think that atmosphere is gonna, you know, they played well in front of in front of that atmosphere this year. So I think that's that's gonna be an advantage. I like part of me is like they might wrap this up in, in five. But I think rationally i think this is coming back to san diego and then you get you know nola versus snell part two and then if it does go to seven i think that pitching matchup favors the padres so i think the the phillies are going to win this series they either need to wrap it up at home or uh if it does go back to san diego try to get it done in six yeah it it does seem like you know from the the way the pottery season is going is that there's going to be some dramatics here if they're going to if they're going to advance it's almost like it's not going to be easy. It's like, it's almost like, yeah, they're going to fall behind three to one and they're going to come all the way back, put themselves in, the, in that hole. But yeah, I, I was going to ask about, about playing over there because Petco Park's been, been crazy. It's been crazy. And, and I don't know what kind of restrictions they have for, for, for buying tickets, but there wasn't a lot of Dodger fans. There wasn't, there's hardly any, any Phillies fans. I, I can't imagine there'll be many Pottery fans over there. It's just, no, it's pretty. <laughs> Not Padre fans, it'll shock you to learn, not thick on the ground in Philadelphia. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the it's it's weird. Like the stadium, like 
the the backdrop or the the seats behind home plate sort of go straight up in a in a way that sort of reminds me of like the Azteca in Mexico City. Mm-hmm. Um, so like you do get a ton of noise coming off the coming off that part of the field, and yeah, it's. I, don't know. I I also think this this Phillies fan base is kind of nervous. Like if the Padres come in and kick them in the teeth early in Game Three, I think like there's a, a chance that that they could take the crowd out of it if they really jump on Ranger Suarez early. So I you know I'm nervous about the collective anxiety of, of this fan base, uh, which is substantial. I was thinking about something Emma Bachelary from Sports Illustrated tweeted during the middle of the, the Padres rally. It was something like anybody who's got a vested rooting interest in this game has to be completely catatonic by now, but this is a lot of fun. And I I, I predict more of the same for, for the next three games in Philadelphia. I think that it's just going to be either tense, close, well-pitched action, or just total berserk nonsense i think every game is going to be close but they're going to be close in in different ways so before we we head out i I think both of these teams have have an interesting perspective on this season where it was important for them to to reach the playoffs and both teams want you know one two rounds they both knocked off a, a major division rival that's been a roadblock you know if this is as far as the padres get how do you feel about this season I feel I feel pretty good, you know. Like I said, no, no, no matter what, I feel pretty good. You know, whatever people think about Tatis, he's he's a huge piece of 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 this team because, you know, like I said, Petco Park, 162 games. There's, there's the 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 dejuiced baseball. He's the guy who's just kind of it doesn't matter. He's just all oh, he always brings the energy. He, oh, he has that that huge power, that huge speed, and so being able to to prepare for a season where it's Tatis, Soto, Machado, and then whoever else you still got your big three starting pitchers as well. I feel I feel pretty good about it. Although at the same time, I think with all these really good teams getting knocked out of the playoffs, there's been a lot of talk of well, you know how many how many World Series did did the Braves win all those years? How many World Series have you know the Astros won? The Dodgers have won just one. Teams are good for a long time because you know for 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 a lot of for a lot of reasons, but getting to the playoffs and then winning the World Series is not easy. And so that now that yeah. now that you're here, this you might be just, the best chance. Yeah, right? you, you yeah. can't you can't just be like, ah, oh, we'll be back next year. We're just we're you know, and the Phillies as well. I don't think they're losing many many. They like the core of that team is coming. Yeah, they'll back. bring back as much of this core as they as they want. I think just getting into the playoffs was so huge after coming close and, and missing a couple times with this this core and everything that's happened since is gravy. And like you could say, oh, the Mets and Dodgers got knocked out early, like the bracket opened up for them. But I just look at in terms of actually winning a World Series, like I look at the Astros. I think they're gonna absolutely shred the Yankees and then they're gonna do even worse to whoever comes out of the NL. So I like I don't look at this as a as a great opportunity for it is it is easier. The path is clearer for for both of these teams. But yeah, I, I would be really happy for Dusty Baker. I would be really happy. Yeah, for him. man, there's a guy who needs one. Like yeah. yeah, talk about somebody who's come close. I'm sure it's going to be calm out in those Philadelphia streets uh, the, ne- the next few days. I did have a fun a fun uh, story from when I left Petco Park yesterday. Although it's not you know there, there was there wasn't a lot of Phillies fans, but. There was a few a few brave ones walking around in Philly's gear, and of course they they should expect people to be yelling at them. Um, there were there was one little group that was that was starting to push and shove, and I didn't see any Phillies jerseys. But for whatever reason, they're just it was it was a little guy in a Padres jersey, and these older guys are pushing him, and I'm walking right past him, and I slow down, 
And I'm like, I don't know what I was going to do. I don't know if I'm going to try to break up a fight, but I slow down and then I just kind of keep walking slowly. And then I'm just watching and I, you know, eventually I, I, I keep, you know, I, I, I stop and a few times and, and I turn next to me and there's somebody doing the same thing. He's kind of like stopping and watching and then, you know, then, all right, I'm going to mind my business to walk away. Except this guy was seven foot four tall. <laughs> it was Ralph Sampson. Yeah, uh, I saw him on the on the broadcast. That's yeah, cool. and I, I and I would I, I don't know if I would have thought about it. I know there's some San Diego ties, and I, I guess he went to college with Peter Scyther, the owner of the Padres. Oh, is that what that is? Uh, yeah. He went to UVA or something, right? Yeah, That's, they both went yeah. to UVA. Went to UVA together, and so I had seen that he was there. Or else, I, I don't know if I would have put it together that that huge. I mean, yeah, seven foot four, and he's so skinny too. But it's just like. Yeah, I guess that's seven foot. I mean, he looks seven foot four. Uh, and I was like, all right, me and Ralph Sampson are going to jump in and break up this fight here. Yeah. Well, the Phillies had Joel Embiid at one of the games in the last series. So I think, like, intending no disrespect to Ralph Sampson, the legend, I think the Phillies still have a uh, low post presence covered oh, uh, no if doubt. it comes yeah. down to that. All right, so we're going to take a break. We'll be back with Davey Andrews and Dan Zaborski. But Jason, I'm not going to wish you good luck. I'm going to wish you good cardiovascular health for the rest of the series. I need it. I need it. Same to you. Yeah, it's been fun. So we'll talk again soon. Esteemed Fangraphs experiencer, you have now stumbled upon the second of two segments in this week's hair-raising episode of Fangraphs Audio. I'm Digital Danny Dan Zamborski, and I'm joined today by one of our new contributors, Davey Andrews. Davey has written for Baseball's Prospectus and is a musician and the aficionado of dessert making, desert making for those who cannot spell, and now has the misfortune to have to interact with me for a longer segment amount of time than anyone should ever be subjected to. Hi, Davey. How are things today? Hi, I'm I'm doing great. I'm very excited to be here. And by here, I mean the smallest room in my apartment. So you weren't there before we started recording, but you joined that room is what you're saying. I joined that room five minutes before we started recording. Well, you might be new to some of our listeners. So let's start off. Tell me how you got into this extremely nerdy pastime come occupation of baseball writing. Oh, man, I sort of fell into it. I've just always been kind of a writer and a maker of things. And I had a very chance encounter where someone that I knew a little bit at Baseball Prospectus had read something that I'd written and invited me to audition there, basically. And I wrote a small teleplay where Rob Manfred was posing as a worker at the Rawlings factory in Costa Rica and trying to convince the workers to do sub baseballs. I did not hear that. Did did Rob Manfred try to affect a, uh, uh, an accent? in this teleplay i stayed away from accents okay <laughs> but that went okay and so i i wrote for short relief for a while and then worked on a, a project called too far from town about the contraction of the minor leagues and then around that time Fangraphs was hiring and i wanted to apply but figured i didn't know enough so i i took me another year to apply but you know was lucky enough to get the call it seems like an occupation where people do tend to fall into it to a degree. Uh, like you look at Carson Sestouli, he was a poetry guy who ended up at Fangraphs and then the Toronto Blue Jays. Uh, in my case, I just kind of hung around baseball nerds in the 90s, uh, people that were smarter than me. Uh, and by proximity, it kind of tricked people into thinking I was smart, too. And I kind of started writing baseball as a result of that. Uh, so I definitely understand the falling into 
aspect of, of, of the job. Right. I think the through line is just that you have to be a big nerd in at least one area. Yeah, I think that the idea of wanting to write about baseball, especially at the start where you're not really getting paid that much to write about baseball, you have to have a passion for it like anything. I get asked by students like, like, what is a career path to get into baseball writing? And it's like writing about baseball is the path to writing about baseball. It's I, I don't think, you know, at least the independent sites like Fangraphs Baseball Perspectives really troll through like, you know, the journalism schools to see who is available, <laughs> which would be kind of a weird dichotomy between the rest of our skill sets. Uh, so it's it's I guess there's a little bit of a democratization. It's a it's the people's journalism occupation. <laughs> well, yeah, I definitely feel like if you had asked me two years ago whether I would ever get to write for Fangraphs, I would have said, oh, definitely not. Now, uh, I did want to talk a little about your non-baseball interest, because, again, this is the second of two segments <laughs> in Fangraphs Audio. And when Dan Zaborski is in charge, strange things happen. Now, there is a lot of overlap between baseball nerds and music. You get a lot of when you hang around baseball fans. Eventually, you will talk about music at some point. And so I kind of wanted to interrogate you a little bit about your music. I've I've listened to some of it to review it. You have two albums as part of the Subway Ghost that has a kind of garage rock vibe. You recorded albums with Daniel Epstein, a duo album as the refurbishments. You have a number of cuts under your own name. Uh, I've been on Bandcamp this morning checking them out, and I, I really enjoy the eclecticism you display, which reminds me a bit of Dr. Dog or Nick Jana. You go from indie rock to kind of sparser acoustic arrangements that are frequently single instrument and border on anti-folk in a way. And you mentioned recording about minor league teams. You have an album and an album of demos about the eliminated minor league teams, and that's kind of almost... A slice of life thing that you see in like John John Darnell's Mountain Goats albums, like All Hail West Texas, Full Force Galesburg. So let's get off the baseball thing since this is a baseball podcast. I'd like to know a little bit more about your music because I I do not play guitar or drums. I mean, I can play piano, which might be useful, and I can play like brass instruments, but there's not a lot of hard rock. Wait, you can play brass instruments? I can play brass instruments. All I want is to know someone who can put a trumpet on one of my songs. <laughs> I'm not. A, I know. A tr I know professional trumpeteers. If you need help, I could actually connect you with them. Now, if you need a tuba, I'm definitely your man. A oh, tuba really? <laughs> or you know a baritone horn. That'd be a nice, a fun two duo combo. Just you know, acoustic guitar and a baritone horn or tuba. I think I've heard stranger combos. Just don't make me sing. I have no voice to sing. I have. <laughs> I have about a three-note recognizable range. <laughs> but anyway, before we talk about my lack of indie rock cred, I'd like to know more about yours and how you got into that field. Sure. Well, you definitely hit the right, I mean, the Mountain Goats and, you know, in terms of anti-folk, you know, like Kimmy Dawson and the Moldy Peaches were the big, that's who I was going for when, when I was working with the refurbishments with, with my friend Kat. Oh, so I, I, I did kind of get where you were going. That makes me feel smart. Oh, yeah. And Absolutely. also tricks people into thinking I'm smart. Or that we be prepared, <laughs> which we totally did not. <laughs> well, I had read you, I feel like you on a chat or tweeted something about the Mountain Goats recently. And I thought, oh, well, that's good. I have one thing in common with Dan. Yeah, I have I have mentioned them before. I, I am a big fan uh, of him and I guess them, but mostly him. No Children is one of my favorite bitterest songs of all time. Mm -hmm. uh, anyone who really wants to hear the most bitter breakup Bish song ever. I think it's on Tallahassee. I don't remember yeah. offhand, but it's a lot of fun. And it's a very upbeat song for the for the lyrical content. <laughs> right. There's a very happy piano on it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you want to know, I, I got started 
with music kind of the same way I got started writing with baseball. I had just graduated from college and moved to New York, and I got a temp job, and I went to Target with my friend and roommate to buy things that any apartment already desperately needs and we didn't have. And instead, I I wandered around looking for an acoustic guitar, and Target had one. And so I just started playing guitar, and then once I could play guitar, I started writing songs, and I don't know, I just never stopped. And you know, I've made 10 records now and I'm part of a punk rock band. It's, I, I didn't see any of it coming. And hopefully Dylan Higgins will link <laughs> your Bandcamp page on uh, the site because I assume you'd get better money than if it was on Spotify. If people bought records, but that is not normally a thing that happens. <laughs> no, it's not. I Here's the thing. I'm old. Uh, I used to be young as it goes, but now I'm old somehow. I don't know how that happened. And I remember because I grew up buying albums and it just feels weird that people don't buy albums anymore. I mean, I have the same thing. I still I feel very compelled to, especially being a, a musician. You know, I, I buy lots of stuff on Bandcamp. I don't really use the streaming platform as much, but I assume I'm in the vast minority there. How much performing are you interested in? You know, I would love to perform more. I, you know, during COVID, that that obviously has stopped. I, I play with a band called the Subway Ghosts that includes Mike Petriello who, and uh, Michael Clare, who both write for MLB. And... I did not know that Petriello was a... Oh, you know, yeah. I, I know he mentioned it before. Now that I, now I recall it, now I feel kind of stupid. <laughs> and then uh, Dan Epstein, who you mentioned, he, he writes for, uh, for oh, Baseball Perspective. Oh, it's the same Dan Epstein. Drum. Yeah, I'm learning all sorts of new things as we talk. <laughs> I didn't realize it was, I knew the name was familiar, but I figured that there were a lot of Daniel Epstein's out there. They're not like Dan Zaborski's, where <laughs> as far as I can tell, there's two. There's there's me and there's Michigan Dan Zaborski, who seems to be a mechanic, and I think I'm supposed to kill him and become the prime Zaborski. <laughs> but I haven't really done any murders, so I don't really know how to do that. So let me. I, I digress. <laughs> but yeah, so we have played live and are most of the way done making our, our first record. But as far as solo performances, I, I have not got to do a ton of them. I have recorded some children's music. I have seven nieces and nephews, so I, I've played more shows for kids than I have for adults when it comes to solo stuff. But hopefully when it feels a little safer out there, I, I would really love to go play more just on my own. Now, what kind of uncle are you? There's there's only a few genres of uncle. I I have two nephews, but they're both very small, so they don't really know me that well yet. I, I try to be a funkle, but you know, there's 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 genres of uncle. There's the funkle, there's the chronically unemployed uncle, there's the <laughs> meth head uncle, there's the one who still has a mullet uncle. What <laughs> genre of uncle do you think you fit into? I think I'm definitely the fun uncle. Yeah, I you know, I'm very close. And especially, you know, like my siblings live far away. So we I FaceTime a lot with my nieces and nephews. So when I can't visit, I see their faces a lot. And, you know, the, the kids' music kind of helped with that a bit because I was always around. And I, you know, I started writing it to just give them something to listen to in the car because, you know, my sister lives in California and uh, my brothers live in Virginia and South Carolina. So they spend a lot of time just driving around. So so you you, you have more uncle experience than me. I still am at the phase uh, where I don't have I don't have kids. And again, my my nephews are small. I'm still at the phase where I believe I can win an argument with a three year old. <laughs> I think I've given up on that. My oldest niece is 12. What, one of them just turned 10 and 
My sister does a thing where when you turn 10, you get to take a trip anywhere in the continental U.S. Oh, wow. And so my, my fiance and I were were hoping that she was talking a big game about visiting New York as her, her big trip to come and see us. But I was aware that as you get older, your uncles seem less and less cool. And so I, I kind of figured by the time she was actually 10, she would want to do something more interesting than that. But all she wanted was to come bake cookies. So so we did that and we saw a Yankees game. Oh, yeah. Cookies. You you, you do bake as well. I'm not much of a baker. I'm, a, I'm an eater, as my waistline <laughs> would uh, uh, tend to. Now, why would someone put raisins in oatmeal cookies? I like raisins, but it bothers me that you're eating something crunchy and then you just hit a chewy part inside the crunchy part. Well, I I don't enjoy crunchy oatmeal cookies. I've made them before, but I I think oatmeal cookies are supposed to be chewy, so the raisins don't stick out oh, in that way. I don't I don't know if if, if we could be friends. I I like <laughs> there should be some crunch to a cookie. You and your chewy cookies. Yeah, I'm a chewy person. I mean, I'll I'll make them, and sometimes you make them on purpose where the edges are crunchy and the middle is gooey, so you get the best of both worlds. But I'm I'm a chewy cookie type of person. <laughs> now I, I I have to ask now. Do you have a position on Cincinnati chili? I have been re- <laughs> I've been reading Fangraphs chats for a long time, so I I know enough not to wade into this. Damn it! See, I <laughs> to welcome people to to Fangraphs on their first <laughs> podcast. I like to make them a little uncomfortable, maybe threaten them a little, uh, and then and then they're all set. Now, I guess we should get back on baseball. And I was talking about performing, uh, but one player who didn't really perform well <laughs> was a second baseman named Jose Altuve of the Houston Astros. In the three games against the Mariners, he was not one of the contributors. He went 0 for 16, one walk, six strikeouts. He did not have a positive win probability added, uh, let's just say. Uh, you wrote about his struggles in the postseason in the, in the limited span we have. So what did the Mariners do that other teams failed to do over the course of the season? Well, I it's hard to draw clean conclusions. They, well, they I demand you draw a conclusion. <laughs> I demand it. <laughs> they, they definitely pitched him a little differently. They really pounded him inside and even off the zone inside because he could not stop swinging. And so I, it, it's hard to tell. I, I suspect that they saw that he was kind of out of control and just figured, oh, well, we're not going to put anything where he can hit the ball because he's going to swing at it no matter what. But whether or not that was the plan, they they definitely pounded him inside with, with two seamers, and he fouled them off or popped them up. It it definitely worked. Yeah, they de- and they definitely had reason to, because over the course of the season, Altuve hit more home runs against the Mariners than any other team. He had four home runs. He, he, he played well against the Mariners this year. So it looks like, at least in the short term, that they figured out how to shut him down. But it could be just small sample size. Right. That's no fun. It is very different from the way they pitched him throughout the year, which is the part that I found really interesting. Yeah, because intention doesn't really have a sample size, I guess. Mm-hmm. Like if I went out and robbed a bank today, I've never robbed a bank before, but there's a lot of intentionality in robbing a bank. It wasn't just random chance that <laughs> I went about my day and I just randomly robbed a bank. Right. And there's also, you know, he faced Luis Castillo for several innings who wasn't on the Mariners. He, he had not faced the Astros before at all. So it's hard to know how much that played into it. And, you know, that that last game, game three was in the shadows for a large part. So there are a lot of factors, but, you know, underlying factor was that Altuve could not stop swinging regardless of where the pitches were. 
Now, I probably should disclose at this point that I, I just in case for the listener, I do not rob banks. <laughs> I'm the kind of person who I feel kind of a jerk if I ask a waiter for like a refill on a drink. So that's not really great assertiveness level inconveniencing another to, to actually go rob a bank. Once when I was at ESPN uh, headquarters, uh, we were having a meeting of baseball writers and we had brought lunch back into the conference room and I spilled out my chips all over the conference room floor when I flipped over my, my plate and there were potato chips all over the floor. And I left the conference to go try to find a dustpan and a broom or something, but they insisted on you know getting uh, the, the janitor to come clean it up. And it was the most uncomfortable five minutes of my life watching this guy clean up my mess. And I was like trying not to make eye contact with him. I think he knew that I was the one who did that. And I was so uncomfortable. <laughs> and that's all I remember of like most of that day is the awkwardness of, of the potato chip stare down. I have done the same. Like, I think I have gone and found the mop in my office rather than bother someone else. Now, Altuve is an interesting uh, player simply because when you look at where we look back on the Astros in, say, 10, 15 years, I'm sure the trash can signal stealing issues will not have died completely down by then. And he's one of the players who, whether or not he participated or benefited, is going to be identified with the Astros of this era, uh, especially when it comes to to Hall of Fame induction. And, you know, even if not against the rules, there's, there is that kind of character clause. And for me, I'm kind of on the wall. If he were a borderline candidate, I can see just from the attempt or the association to keep him out. But I'm not sure about that. I'm kind of curious, uh, since we're talking Altuve, what, how you feel about that. I find it hard to believe. Now I'm, I'm trying to look up his Jaws number, but I, I find it hard to believe that that would keep him out, especially when... He's produced so well in the years since then. And I, I don't know. It's I know the character clause is a thing, but it's hard to imagine for something as small as as that. I, I don't mean to minimize it that much, but it, it's definitely different from performance enhancing drugs, for example, in my opinion. Yeah, it's tricky, especially because you can argue that stealing signals does kind of fit into the history of baseball in a way. I'm appreciative when I don't have to sometimes make these decisions. Uh, for example, I'm I'm eternally grateful that when Derek Jeter was up for the Hall of Fame that I did not have my vote yet. And I'm still a couple more years to getting my vote because I my position is when there are more than 10 players who I believe should be inducted, I will not vote for a player who is a slam dunk easy Oh, really? In. So what would have happened is that I would have felt compelled to not vote Derek Cheater for the Hall of Fame. <laughs> and I would have also philosophically been compelled to disclose that because I believe in transparency. And then I would never be allowed in New right. York again. And then you would have been like swatted, I'm sure. <laughs> I would be the guy who voted against Cheater. And no one would <laughs> care about my explanation well. He was in any way. And I wanted to make sure Billy Wagner got over the 5% threshold and, and Andrew <laughs> Jones did. Nobody would buy that. I'm just a guy who, who hates Cheater. And the anonymous person who did it is which is thinking, yeah, let's a Borsky deal with this. So... <laughs> Sometimes it's nice to not have to make that philosophical decision. Right now, I'm actually, I actually opened up zips and I'm projecting Jose Altuve uh, right. to the Hall of Fame. I should not have bothered looking this up. Well, I did not know we were going to go here. <laughs> I just finished projecting Jose Altuve and zips, and it it projects him to have mm, another thousand or so hits left in him, getting close 
but not over the uh, the 3,000 hit barrier, uh, although there is a chance it says 37% ends up with 53 war, 47 jaws. Oh, which is... 47 jaws puts him kind of in that borderline territory around... Right, average is 57-1. Yeah, around Joe Gordon, Willie Randolph, Craig Biggio. I think I'd vote for him, but I'm not positive I would. Mm-hmm. That's tough, because Dustin Pedroia and Ian Kinsler are there, too. Well, anyway, these are the types of problems that sometimes you're just happy to be relieved of. <laughs> Speaking of problems relieved of, the Cleveland Guardians have been eliminated from the playoffs. The Yankees have avenged their big market rivals who were eliminated, <laughs> especially the Dodgers. And I wrote a bit today about the playoffs being a crapshoot, uh, which, of course, makes me sound like a Dodgers fan because this would be a good opportunity for a Dodgers fan to declare that playoffs don't mean much. I think if you wanted, if you were arguing to overturn the craps table that that's how we would be able to mark you as a Dodgers fan oh yeah if we as Dave Roberts said I think was it Dave Roberts who said that we could just kind of skip the playoffs oh did he I I missed that oh I forget who said that someone in the organization I know Friedman has been pretty pretty bold about saying he hasn't had regrets you know he's saying we did what we did and we stand by it which I appreciate now, uh, the Dodgers, obviously, it is a disappointment for them after winning 111 games to get bounced by the Padres in the round of five, not even get to the NLCS. What do you think they do this offseason? How do you make it clear to fans that you're still trying to win the postseason without making an excuse like it's just a crapshoot? Because as Billy Bean can say, nobody will buy it, even if everybody knows it's true. So how do you deal with that kind of thing? Or can you? Right. I'm not sure that I, I think pander is too strong a word, but playing to your loudest and crankiest fans, you're never going to win that battle. There is always going to be someone who who is upset. And I so I, I don't know what percentage of fans are up in arms right now. But, you know, I have to imagine there's a silent majority who appreciates a season where you win 111 games. Well, to, to steal an old Mitch Hedberg joke, you can't please all the people all the time. And yesterday, all those people were at my show. <laughs> <laughs> so I, in your piece, I, first of all, you were talking about people who want to de- defenestrate the numbers. Yeah, which, I love the word defenestrate. I Because figured. it's so specific. I mean, it's literally throwing something out a window. I mean. That's why I liked it, because I pictured a very anthropomorphic Sesame Street number 10 going, at, you know, out a large building. You could you could integrate it with the pinball machine. Have you are you familiar with with the one two three four five six seven eight nine ten eleven twelve? Are you familiar with that thing where they have a little pinball machine to show the number? No. Oh, well, anyone who's listening, <laughs> then to have the count throw all the numbers out the window into the garbage and <laughs> repent of any counting, say he's now the speller. I guess that would be filler. But defenestration is a great word. Would he be the speller or the spell? The spell. He cast a spell. He could be the wizard. Do they have any wizards on Sesame Street? I Not don't know. That I Listeners, recall. if you know about any <laughs> magical elements of Sesame Street, please let us know because there are, you know, giant anthrop- anthropomorphic birds and Well, wait, there isn't is, there's a someone is a fairy, aren't they? Is Is there a fairy? Am I wrong? Is it what's Abby, I don't know enough about this. The, the problem is I grew up on like 70s Sesame Street, uh, late 70s, early 80s Sesame Street and the electric company. And I don't remember magical elements. I mean, there's certainly some supernatural elements. For example, a vampire. And there, there's Super Grover. OK, Super Grover. Yeah. Uh, but you don't really see, you know, kind of those darker areas. 
Mm-hmm. You don't see like right. There's no Saruman. Yeah, there's no demon on Sesame Street. <laughs> Although they moved to HBO, so they it certainly seems like it's a possibility. Well, yeah, I guess you could on HBO. You could go a little darker on HBO, <laughs> like kind of like Dexter come Sesame Street. <laughs> you know, like whatever happened to Mister Hooper? They can have kind of a, a making of a murderer thing. <laughs> So I don't know how to segue back from that to your piece. <laughs> That's okay. I On this segment, we always have weird segues back into things. Uh, so what is your attitude watching the playoffs, knowing that there is a lot of randomization? Are you able to just completely put that aside and enjoy the playoffs? Or does it sometimes just nag on you like it nags on me that we have 12 teams in the playoffs and it offends me on some f- metaphysical level? How do you cope with randomness in the playoffs i think i enjoy it 100 percent, and i'm just thankful for intense baseball experiences you know as as someone who is still very much a a fan of the worst team in baseball right now now the actual worst team in baseball or the worst run team in baseball because i think the worst team generally it should be the colorado rockies right no just the by by record okay but so it's you know playoff baseball when my team is in it I love and treasure, but do not necessarily enjoy. But, you know, watching the Phillies and Braves beat each other up, I I am thankful for it. Now, do you want the Braves to lose as kind of a measure of, I mean, the Phillies to lose as as a kind of a measure of revenge? Or since the Phillies came out of the division, do you want them to advance to the World Series and win it? I think in years past, I might have begrudged them their success. But I, I think this is such a fun team. You know, I... It's hard not to root for Harper and Schwarber because they were nationals and played so well there. And just the rest of the team is is really enjoyable to watch. I love the who needs gloves strategy. I, I honestly, several times this season, I've gone and looked up the team defensive stats and been disappointed <laughs> that they were third worst instead of absolute worst. I was hoping they would set records. I, I wanted to see it. I, I was kind of hoping that they would have enough injuries so that you'd have a game with with Hoskins back in the outfield and <laughs> and of course Schwarber in, in the other quarter. Schwarber position. in center, yeah. Or or in center. I was thinking Nick Castellanos in, in, in center, but <laughs> it would be fun just to see that because at that point you really have to kind of almost change your, your launch angle a bit to hit more fly balls if you're kind of a, a ground ball guy because you know, the gap in, in kind of those, those alleys, you'd have a lot of triples, I imagine, in, with that three-man outfield. Right. I mean, it's it's barely better than draft three fan graphs people to be the outfield. <laughs> I can run them down. Okay, I can. So you can be you can be the center fielder. I'd really like to be the DH, but you have a good arm, so I can play right badly if I ever got to a ball, which is, which is highly debatable. But anyway, what isn't highly debatable is that we are actually running out of time for this podcast. I want to thank everyone who's listened to us today of Fangraphs Audio. I want to thank Davey Andrews for joining us today for his Fangraphs debut. And I wish you all a great week ahead. And we'll talk more playoffs next time. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the program, consider sharing it with a friend or two. It helps us out. If you would like to check out more of Davey Andrews' music, you should head on over to davyandrews.bandcamp.com. After you have checked out Davey's Bandcamp page and the Fangraph shop, 
Don't forget to download the Fangraphs app, free on the Apple Store and Google Play. It is the best way to use Fangraphs on a mobile device, whether you're at the ballpark or just on your couch. And of course, don't forget to sign up for the Fangraphs newsletter. It is free to your inbox and really helpful for keeping up on all the many things we have going on. That'll do it for us this week. Good luck to your team in the playoffs, and we'll talk to you next time. Beatles and chipmunks he'd seen on TV.